Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 19, Bleeding Kansas, The Dawn of Revolutionary Politics. If you're tired of intricate politics and Washington scheming instead of brutal civil warfare, I have good news and bad news. There's plenty of scheming this week, but also a little warfare. Following up on the largely bloodless sack of Lawrence, and the much bloodier, but at least non-fatal caning of Sumner, it might have seemed as though Kansas were about to fall off the national headlines. Perhaps stunned by the events, the men in Kansas and Missouri apparently backed off, at least momentarily. Realistically, and despite a continuous stream of lurid stories in the press, the people actually in Kansas, or Missouri, didn't desire or seriously intend bloodshed. Gruesome tales of raids and counter-raids made for fine print on the front pages of distant newspapers, but that wasn't a terribly fun way to live. Besides, there were farms and herds and workshops to tend to. It's not that the border ruffians, pro-slavery Kansans or Missourians, weren't capable of violence. Years before, some of the same men had run off the Mormons, wrecked their presses, and lynched founder Joseph Smith. More recently, they attacked newspapers unfriendly to slavery. In Kansas, we've seen that anti-slavery men had been attacked, two had died, and the law itself perverted to serve pro-slavery mobs to the exclusion of justice. Tensions and threatened violence was a constant since the advent of territorial government in 1854. Yet while they may have been happy to wreck presses and smash doors or windows, the border ruffians deliberately held back from serious gunplay against Jayhawkers or Free Soil Kansans. There were times when it seemed that violence would indeed break out, but instead one side or the other always backed down. In a way, despite all the running to and fro, the conflict over slavery looked more like a game than a real and deep feud. It was fun to get together with your buddies, go have a few drinks, then ride around on patrol and then have a few more drinks later that night. Unfortunately, it did not remain that way for long. In the aftermath of the sack of Lawrence and the caning of Sumner, a deadly seriousness was imported by another newcomer to Kansas, a man named John Brown. We're going to have an episode specifically on Brown later that goes into these events and Brown's involvement in much more detail, but the important points are these. On the night of May 24th, 1856, John Brown led a group of self-appointed Free Soil militiamen, loyal to Brown himself, in search of several picked pro-slavery targets. When the band found these men, who were all such terrible foes that they were eating dinner or relaxing with their families, John Brown and his brave foes of slavery mercilessly executed them. Five people died that night, hacked to pieces with swords without firing a shot in their own defense. Two of them were the adult children, though still very young men, of the main targets. None owned slaves. The aftermath of these brutal attacks became important for three reasons. First, it arrived as a nasty shock to the Free Soil Clause, the anti-slavery camp distanced themselves from Brown, who, truth be told, was never at all considered part of the Free Soil leadership, nor had he particularly done much to aid their cause. His eldest son, who had not known of the attacks, was somewhat more important, but he soon lost his own position in the militia as a result. The second important issue brought up by the attacks was the newspaper where it launched. You can well imagine that pro-slavery, or at least anti-abolition presses, made hay of the unprovoked murder. 
and they certainly did, which most likely contributed to Southern determination to hold Kansas for slavery. But at the same time, Free Soil newspapers reported the act, but spun increasingly wild yarns about what they claimed really happened. John Brown was an inconvenient villain of that story, so they came up with more and more far-fetched culprits to point to. Frankly, it's a wonder they didn't declare that the victims all killed themselves. It should be understood, however, that many people in Kansas knew very well that Brown was guilty, or suspected as much, and probably no one was really fooled who didn't want to be fooled in that area. National authorities never entirely figured out the entire mess, and Brown was never charged with the murders, although, as we will see, some tried to bring him in. But the third and most significant aspect of Potawatomi was that it slipped all emotions off the leash. John Brown made violence part of life in Kansas. This does not mean that murder became an everyday occurrence, and voices would rise to stop it. But unfortunately, from here on out, the free soil and pro-slavery factions grew more suspicious and more ready to pull guns. Going forward, homes would be burned and raids launched and men or women gunned down and random assassinations. Official numbers of victims are low, perhaps a dozen or two per year. But that was a frighteningly high proportion of the population, amounting to a murder rate six times as high as the modern United States, and certainly higher than any surrounding U.S. state or territory then. Nonetheless, the Potawatomi Massacre failed to weaken the Free Soil cause, and in the long run, as reaction provoked reaction, may even have sustained it against political pressure. The lack of clarity over the events limited the backlash, and in any case, Brown's actions couldn't easily be hung around the necks of Free Soilers. Indeed, much of the violence spawned out of Potawatomi came about because Charles Robinson, a Free State man and a leading voice of peaceful resistance and peaceful methods, had been jailed on the pro-slavery party's account. Thus, there was no one to rein in the hotheads. Equally unfortunate amid all this mess, federal soldiers were busy adding to the chaos more than they were bringing law and order to the territory. One U.S. Marshal captured two of John Brown's sons, John Brown Jr. and Jason Brown, neither of whom took part in Potawatomi, and burned a store owned by one of those men. American soldiers then tried to use the two as hostages to exchange for Brown. Infuriated, John Brown himself appeared, but he brought with him free state militia who surrounded the marshal and soldiers alike, who suddenly realized they had bitten off much more than they could chew. Brown was outnumbered and outgunned, but he had brazen fury and induced the soldiers to free his sons. Of course, with federal agents and territorial militia out committing arson and taking hostages, the Free Staters weren't about to submit to any outside authority. At best, a detachment of cavalry troopers could make them lay down their arms only until it moved on. Of course they tried, and even forced the Free State Topeka legislature to disband at gunpoint. But this could only work in the short term, and every attempt to enforce the law fell short because the laws themselves were corrupt from the start. The only consequences were that the second governor wisely quit and got out before the politics backfired on his career, and his temporary replacement was removed for making the situation worse. We should take this moment to clarify just how bizarre the situation in Missouri and Kansas had grown. Armed soldiers or militia, acting under extremely dubious authority, might declare that this or that group of prospective settlers had best turned around and leave. Or else. Agents nominally under government authority burned houses of the citizens at will. The mails were searched or even just tossed on the whim of pro-slavery postal agents. 
the army was being called out, not to protect the people, but to stop them from peaceably assembling. Clearly, something had gone very, very wrong. Kansas, of course, became the major point of attack for the Republican presidential campaign in 1856, and finding a way to quiet down the situation became a major policy goal for the Democrats. Republicans tried to prevent any military funding from supporting the army in the territory, pointing out that the Pierce administration's tyrannical excess had caused the entire problem, and throwing more guns in did no one any good. They failed by a slim margin, but Pierce, for his part, felt it necessary to salvage the situation while he had a chance. He therefore dispatched John Geary as the third territorial governor. Geary, as a proud Democrat, a soldier, and a notable lawman with a proven track record, seemed very well equipped to handle Kansas on behalf of the Pierce administration. His goals were to make Kansas a state, preferably with a strong Democratic Party affiliation. The problems in Kansas, however, were simply not the result of law-breaking or civil disobedience, but reflected something much deeper. At the fundamental level, Free Soil Kansans demanded a government that respected their choices and represented their interests, and new elections were now coming up quickly. We are in the summer of 1856, getting awful close to the presidential election, too, and in Kansas, everything would change and stay the same all at once. Geary succeeded in tamping down the violence and bringing a modicum of order to the territory. He made public appeals for decency and promised to be a neutral, honest governor for all Kansas. Geary stuck to that promise, too, and in return, the violence in Kansas at least slowed for a time. But problems remained, not the least because now everybody in Kansas had armed and joined one faction or another. For a second, though, the pro-slavery faction engaged in rank dishonest dealing, constantly trying to undermine Geary precisely because he worked assiduously to be an honest broker. The territorial legislature imposed in the original elections back in 1855 in a questionably legal process remained extremely pro-slavery. But by now, the Free Soilers held the obvious advantage in numbers and by a wide margin. After all the conflict and campaigns of intimidation and retaliation, they were in no way going to back down. Unfortunately for them, and for Geary, the legislature wasn't just going to leave office under those circumstances, so they collectively took action that even at the time was exceptional. Among many other highly questionable laws, the legislature wrote into the legal code rules that functionally allowed them to free any pro-slavery man indicted for crimes, aimed at Geary's attempt to bring law and order. And they used it too, which promptly threatened to undermine all that Geary accomplished. Further, they undercut future electoral legitimacy by trying to add restrictions and qualifications to prevent free state men from voting at all, and other rules to try and impose a corrupt process. Though a staunch Democrat, much like the pro-slavery party, Geary had limits to what brand of nonsense he could accept, and the Kansas legislature clearly stepped well outside what was permissible according to American political tradition. The legislature ignored him completely and in fact overrode his vetoes. Political retribution followed, up to and including various death threats and a lack of support from the new president, Buchanan, which resulted in Geary leaving Kansas in March of 1857. After resigning, Geary remarked that he had learned more of the depravity of my fellow man than I ever before knew. In his place, James Buchanan sent Robert J. Walker, a Mississippi man and experienced politician. Walker received his appointment in May of 1857. 
But as the fourth governor of Kansas in three years, Walker knew only too well that the forthcoming elections could not be fair. Southern or not, he had the sense and honesty to see that things had to change. The Territorial Slave Code was legally suspect on its face and wildly unconstitutional anyway, and the pro-slavery faction was making more enemies by the day. But Walker, too, foundered on the shoals of Kansas politics. The next significant election was to create a constitutional convention for Kansas that would then apply for statehood. But the Free State Party had no faith in this. With a nakedly dishonest election in the offing, Free Soil Kansans simply refused to participate, resulting in one of the lowest election turnouts in American history. Walker tried to mollify them, but he had nothing to offer. Sure, this meant that the pro-slavery side dominated, but also demonstrated inherently that they had no mandate and could hardly expect support for whatever constitution they wrote. The Free Soil side did, however, eventually agree to vote in the new elections for the territorial legislature itself. This returned a surprise result. Somehow the pro-slavery faction won yet again. Yet, as it turned out, the election had, again, been turned into a mad farce by hilarious fraud. In just one specific case, over a thousand fake ballots were invented from thin air and turned in from a single district. And the deception was especially egregious for being patently obvious. For starters, it's usually unwise to try sending in ten times as many fake ballots as there are documented voters. And this was just one example, for pro-slavery vote fraud had become so commonplace as to be considered normal by this time. Governor Walker was not impressed and refused to allow this nonsense to continue, installing a free-soil legislative majority. Of course, pro-slavery leaders locally and in Washington suddenly discovered that Walker lacked the authority to do this. Side note, for my part, I do not claim to know whether or not Walker overreached legally, but seems as though someone must have the authority to review and certify the election returns. Territorial governors usually have a lot of power in American history, so Walker's actions do not seem out of the ordinary. Pro-slavery Southerners who complained had only themselves to blame for sustaining years of fraud, violence, and tyranny. However, the matter subsided as Walker's time in Kansas was already quickly coming to a close. Back in Washington, Southern Democrats had worked themselves into a lather over Walker's apparent conversion to the anti-slavery cause. This conversion was, in fact, quite genuine, and Walker, like Geary, would in fact go on to support the Republicans during the Civil War. Among their reasons given... Walker openly favored a territorial referendum on the new constitution that would be forthcoming, while Southern politicians hoped to ram past that obstacle, probably knowing that the people of Kansas would never support a pro-slavery constitution. Buchanan, for his part, agreed with Walker in private, but eventually backed down in the face of determined agitation from congressmen and senators such as Jefferson Davis. Buchanan was no stronger a president than Pierce. In addition, this moment represents the final demolition of Stephen Douglas's desire for territorial self-determination. Because what was becoming clear is that slaveholders would not permit popular sovereignty if they could ever prevent it. They wanted Kansas, by force if necessary. The issue in Kansas then turned to said forthcoming state constitution, and there followed such a wild sequence of nonsense that it's almost impossible to fully explain in brief. In no other time in American history has a state constitutional convention failed so thoroughly to create a document that pleased its constituents. Or rather, in honesty, the Kansas Convention outright offended its constituents. 
Now, we have only briefly brought up national issues in this specific episode, but it's worth explaining those in order to clarify why the pro-slavery convention is about to completely immolate itself, why pro-slavery Southerners thought this was a grand idea, and why this is going to fuel the Republican Party's ascent in 1860. The United States in 1857 had gone from tense to just plain itching with energy. The slavery issue, pushed forward by the debate over Kansas in the West, was then transformed by Southern political leaders into a point of honor. And once that happened, sanity or even facts no longer mattered at all. Every student of the Civil War should remember this, because it is key to understanding why they made, and will continue to make, so many major public political mistakes. Once it was felt that Kansas was supposed to be a slave state, anything that happened to hinder that outcome became, in their mind, a personal affront. Of course, that was largely nonsense. But men like Jefferson Davis, though otherwise honorable, were going out of their way to take offense. The biggest problem, of course, remained that the actual human beings living in Kansas viewed slavery as somewhere between a figurative economic tar pit dragging down the stride of every free white man and an abomination before the eyes of God, and sometimes both. Hence we see why the pro-slavery faction kept trying increasingly insane ploys to stay in power. They had no other option but to give up, and that was unthinkable. But of course, every time they did something, it became more and more obvious how much of a minority they were, and how morally questionable their actions were. And this incited the disgust and hatred of the voters. Back in Washington, and in the various state capitals, Southern Democrats, meanwhile, kept busy convincing themselves that their political future and the future of the entire South and slavery were at stake. In their eyes, they had to triumph and get a political advantage for the Southern way of life, or inevitably slavery would be extinguished and their special privilege, their special place. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, this was also nonsense. Many corners of the United States did not directly oppose slavery, even when they didn't participate in it, and even most free soilers didn't seriously plan to interfere with slavery in the South. Note that this is not about whether or not they should have taken a strong stance. The reality was that many voters didn't especially want to care about slavery when they had issues pertaining to their own lives. But for Southern leaders, this was no longer enough. In the South of 1857, slavery had to be pushed forward at every opportunity, and few politicians, if any, were considering the consequences. No one thought about their reaction in the North to slavery being rammed down the throat of Kansas, and if they did, the response was that Northerners just needed to get on board, since slavery was so obviously a good thing that nearly everyone outside the system was actively opposing it. Personal note, I have sometimes been informed that I have too dry a sense of humor. So let me state outright that I'm using sarcasm to make a point. Slavery is an inhuman evil. In any case, the Kansas Constitutional Convention, meeting in Lecompton, soon developed their document and once again outsmarted themselves. With assurance that President Buchanan would push the issue forward, they disdained submitting it to the voters precisely. Now, this in and of itself was not too wildly out of American tradition. In general, state constitutions have fairly standard provisions and were written by enthusiastic representatives of the people, so it wouldn't be necessary in normal circumstances. But these were emphatically not normal times. The delegates did this in part because they had gotten their seats in one of the last corrupt elections in 1857, as mentioned, right after Walker's arrival, and they knew their limited power was fading very quickly. 
Therefore, the new constitution as written came in two flavors, both with some unusual and questionably legal prescriptions. In essence, the documents required the sanctity and inviability of private property, including very definitely the property in the form of slavery. Rather too obviously, the issue in question only meant human property. Realistically, there was no other form that would require such specific protection. The state constitution further tried to lock down this provision to prevent an anti-slavery majority from ever removing that section in the future, a tactic of very questionable validity under the law. To clarify, in the American legal tradition, a legislature may choose to take up an issue or not, but cannot bind future legislative sessions. Either the legislature has authority or not, and that authority is not normally time-dependent. And the Free Soil faction almost certainly would have the votes to revise the Kansas Constitution if they so chose. The convention, which gave its name to the written constitutions as they were henceforth referred to as the Lecompton Constitution, or even just Lecompton, was not altogether blind to its unpopularity. The regular elections as certified by Walker revealed the real situation, and so the pro-slavery element settled on trickery. The two flavors alluded to earlier. The first was the Constitution explicitly with slavery, and the second without slavery. Except as the voting public immediately realized, the property provisions had been left in. Nothing would stop anyone's from simply bringing in whatever slaves they wished, and enjoying the complete protection of the law. How could free soilers defend themselves against a slaveholding class that was already willing to lie, cheat, and steal to gain and maintain power? Given these choices, the public turned away from the ballot at all, and refused to sanction Lecompton in any form, even given the opportunity to vote in October of 1857. This didn't stop Southern Democrats on the national stage, however, from trying to push forward the Constitution since it had technically been submitted by Dooley, if questionably, elected representatives of the state of Kansas. Events therefore now turn to Washington. Among the major difficulties for Democrats were that Buchanan himself had previously been committed to the idea of submitting the state constitution for ratification by the voters of Kansas. This was good popular sovereignty doctrine, and had once been good politics, but now matters were more complicated. The cabinet leaned very hard on the pro-slavery side, and Buchanan grudgingly followed. It should be acknowledged that Buchanan actually did push back against this at first, but as was usually the case, he simply gave up on that notion once events moved past him. In consequence, Buchanan decided that actively endorsing Lecompton would become necessary. Unfortunately for him, this would also shortly become a serious mistake, and for two major reasons. First, by doing so, he laid the last foundations for uniting the entire free soil movement across all the northern states. In killing the chances of popular sovereignty, Buchanan also more or less killed the Democratic Party in the North, and many of its voters now came directly over to the Republicans, to be followed, in short order, by many of its politicians. This provided the necessary impetus to completely fit everyone possible into the big Republican tent. And second, it deeply divided the remaining Democrats between North and South right at the moment it was most necessary for them to stick together. Stephen Douglas himself became absolutely enraged that he literally got into a screaming argument with Buchanan in the White House, 
both of them liberally throwing around threats. Buchanan pretended he could act with the power and decisiveness of Andrew Jackson in undercutting party men who defied him. Douglas sneered in his face and got away with it. In Buchanan's mind, the issue probably seemed rather simple, and so it was on its face because he was a simple-minded man. He had Southern politicians demanding Kansas as if by right, and muttering more and more warnings about secession. But also at this moment, Buchanan had an apparent majority in Congress, or would with a little log rolling. The Democrats, though fatally wounded in the North, still had enough votes to formally admit Kansas as a slave state. Personal note, I defer here to David Potter's The Impending Crisis because he points out this salient fact I completely missed. Potter correctly points out, this was all a repeat of 1854, because history repeats the first time as tragedy and the second as farce. Once again, a northern-born but southern-dominated president used all his political capital to shove forward a divisive bill in the House while risking the party split. Alexander Stevens whipped up votes on the floor of Congress. And, moreover, Kansas and slavery were the sole issues both times. Yet in this moment, Democrats pushed their luck too far. Stephen Douglas could have supported Buchanan, but he knew the feeling in the North accurately, and frankly, so did most Northern Democrats. They were not going to cut their own political throats again, merely to humor a Southern-dominated administration. Buchanan and Stevens could perhaps offer some patronage jobs or other giveaways to those likely to lose their seats, but that remained a cold comfort to aspiring politicians. More to the point, Buchanan and none of the Southern leaders really seemed to understand just how hostile the political environment in the North was becoming. As a result, the Kansas bill died the slowest kind of legislative death, being chipped away by delay and maneuver until it became irrelevant. At some point, it began to dawn on the administration that Douglas and his following, which at this end point included the entire diminished yet still significant northern wing of the party, were frankly a lot more willing to risk the wrath of the weak, petulant President Buchanan over the wrath of the voters. The only wonder was that it took them so long to realize. Now, by April of 1858, the Buchanan administration understood too clearly just how far it had overreached, and it reversed course. They embraced the strategy they previously skipped and came up with a compromise solution based on a proposal from Kentucky Senator John J. Crittenden. Crittenden has long been a significant figure in politics, but he's going to be important later as a uh, very important compromiser. Crittenden's plan, in short, required a strategic retreat, although one favorable to the pro-slavery interest in Kansas. He called for a vote on the seemingly unrelated issue of the customary grant of federal land. But rejecting that by the voters in Kansas would also implicitly reject statehood. Of course, this was not the optimal outcome for the pro-slavery faction, but there was no downside for them. In any case, the weary voters in Kansas trudged back to the polls, but they rejected Crittenden's plan by a 5-to-1 margin, this time in a roughly honest election. Whether or not the administration had intended it, many voters felt they were being offered a bribe to accept slavery and under the circumstances hardened their stance even more. It also backfired in the sense of completely revealing how committed and united the anti-slavery element was in Kansas. And in Kansas, well, the fact is that the bleeding never entirely stopped. Attacks, raids, and counter-raids became so normal there that it ceased to be viewed as unusual. 
It kept going right through the Civil War when everything actually got worse. Yet every year, the Free State, Free Soil men got stronger and more numerous and more assertive. And now, they dominated a legitimate territorial legislature, and no one could dispute it. They did not receive statehood until 1861, but it was their men, Charles Robinson and Jim Lane, who would go on to represent their state. This moment also presented Southern Democrats with a huge problem in the future, though they had perhaps not entirely realized it. With their votes in the Senate, they could potentially hold the line on granting Kansas statehood under a free constitution. Yet this would inevitably become a weird anomaly the longer it went on, and as the territorial population increased even more. The only reason Kansas didn't become an even bigger political issue is that the entire country exploded into a shooting war first. As it was, Buchanan had lit the political fuse and would spend the next two years holding a bomb in his hands, all the while standing around with a confused look on his face. Next time, we see yet another step in that slow-moving blast as a middle-aged servant named Dred Scott finds himself at the almost literal crossroads of slavery, freedom, and the battle for the soul of the territories. Thank you for joining us on the American Civil War Podcast. I hope you'll come back next time.